From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org slash holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and welcome to the Holiness Podcast. Uh, We are here in July, picking up on a two-part series that we began in May on the Wesleyan understanding of God's grace. You will remember that I promised you we would come back to that this month. We took a little hiatus in June and uh, studied the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But now we're going to return to uh, Wesley's understanding of grace, one of the ways in which he significantly impacted the church and its history. And we also will be uh, highlighting the difference between Reformed and Wesleyan Arminian theology uh, on the one point of sanctifying grace. We do that once in a while. Uh, We look at the systems of theology because a great deal of the questions which believers have about Scripture are often uh, tied to these systems of thought. And uh, it can be helpful to go back, and I hope that will be the case today. Now, amazingly, we were just speaking here about the fact that this is podcast number 44, which means we've been doing this for almost four years. Uh, Time does fly. And we did deal with this topic back in the first year when our focus on it was the relationship between grace and sin and holiness. So today is going to be part review from previous podcasts from over two years ago, as well as completing what I hope will be. a succinct statement of sanctifying grace from a Wesleyan point of view. Having said that, uh, there's a wonderful book called The Optimism of Grace that was written by Cliff Sanders. And in a moment, I'm going to quote a little bit from that book. But John Wesley understood salvation to be a matter of grace from beginning to end. We've looked at the four steps uh, back in May of that understanding of grace. Provenient grace, which was our topic, we called it enabling grace, which I think opens up the understanding of that word provenient. But it begins with provenient grace and then moves to justifying grace. That's when we commit to Christ and become a believer, and our lives are changed, to sanctifying grace, which we believe is the ongoing work of God's Spirit uh, in the life of a believer, to glorifying grace, which Wesley believed is what took place at the moment of death when we go to be with the Lord. Now, it is Wesley's optimism of the work and power of grace that actually keeps him grounded in the Reformation. He affirms the total depravity of human beings 
Yet all the while, he affirms the power of God's grace to bring about transformation in people's lives. So we're titling this podcast today, The Power of Sanctifying Grace. Let me quote uh, Cliff Sanders in his book, The Optimism of Grace. Wesley is clear about human depravity and the utter inability of human beings to respond to God by one's own power. But he is just as clear when it comes to the power of God's grace from within that is able to change the sinner. For Wesley, sin is a horrible reality of human existence, but the grace of God is a powerful reality that is greater than any human failure or sin. It is this optimism of grace that distinctly characterizes the work of John Wesley. You see, Wesley believed that grace involved more than just pardon. It was the transforming power of God in human life, wrote Randy Maddox. Wesley believed that because he was a careful and holistically thorough student of the Bible. He saw God's grace transform people of authentic Christian faith. One of our favorite authors, Mildred Bangs Winecoop, also observed, grace is all that God is in relation to man, which would include forgiveness, mercy, new creation, and shared life with God. Certainly, God's grace involves forgiveness and pardon, but it is not limited to that. It must include provision for living in fellowship with God and with others. Salvation, after all, according to Wesley, is not just what God does for us. It is also what God does in us. So Wesley asserted that God's grace was not just his favor or kindness expressed in the forgiveness of sin, although that's a central understanding he had of grace but it also was the empowering of God and the lives of those who had been forgiven of sin and are now new creations that have God's grace by way of his presence in their lives as to enable them to live transformed lives. Now, if you're taking notes, I would invite you to write down the following. If you're simply listening, these two truths are basic definitions that are foundational to our study. And we're going back to, uh, I believe it's podcast number six, when we talked about grace, sin, and holiness. Truth number one, for a Christian, being saved by grace is a witness to the experience of salvation meaning that a person's previously broken relationship with God is restored and the guilt of sin is removed. You see, being saved by grace involves a person expressing faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins. For that reason, I have heard the witness all of my life in church from believers saying, as Paul said in Ephesians, I am a sinner saved by grace. Truth number two is that 
sanctifying grace for a Christian is a witness to the experience of holiness, meaning that a person is experiencing the Spirit-led life. Now, in being saved by grace, we saw that the guilt of sin is removed. But Wesley taught that experiencing the Spirit-led life and sanctifying grace meant that the power of sin can be broken. Sanctifying grace involves a person having an open, dynamic relationship with God the Holy Spirit, who lives in every Christian. The goal of every believer should be then to live by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as an aside, I've been looking at uh, writing a little series of uh, Bible studies, welcoming people after they've made a confession of faith that are truly new to the Christian faith. And I've concluded that uh, the first couple of lessons I want to teach are going to be entitled, Meet Your New Life Partner. (laughs) And that's the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is that righteousness and salvation and sanctification are all about relationships. Okay, newsflash. In both our salvation and our subsequent life as Christians, sin and grace are effectively interwoven and define one another. To talk about saving grace is to talk about the forgiveness of sin. To embrace sanctifying grace, the ever-available grace of God for believers, is to resist and reject sin. I've uh, taught holiness and sanctification for uh, quite a few years, and immediately people uh, have questions about sin. (laughs) And when you are studying grace, there's an intimate connection between grace and sin. Most of the greatest truths about the gospel As we've said, salvation, grace, and holiness are all about our relationship with God. So let's just uh, have some simple definitions. Again, we're highlighting uh, a podcast we did on this subject. Sin can be defined as whatever breaks man's relationship with God and causes separation between God and mankind. It's good to... uh, establish some sort of definition because the Bible never defines sin. It makes statements about it, about sin, but uh, the best way most Bible teachers and scholars believe to understand sin is the broken relationship with God, whatever breaks that relationship and causes separation. Grace is the act of God which offers restoration of that broken relationship. Salvation is the experience of having that relationship restored and the guilt of sin removed. And holiness or sanctification is the experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit breaking the power of sin in our lives. So if you try to separate grace from sin, you can't do it. (laughs) They're bound together by definition, and by the reality 
of life. Now, we did a study, I think it was podcast 10, entitled Holiness, the Fruit Produced by Salvation. And I want to uh, remind you of the three truths that came out of that study and that podcast because it certainly reminds us of the subject that we are talking about today, and it fits right in. Now, this was based on Romans, the sixth chapter, and I want to read most of that chapter, and then, if you'll listen carefully, I'll point out the verses that uh, teach these three great truths. And then we're pretty well set to finish talking about the difference between sanctifying grace and prevenient grace. Romans chapter 6. This is the New International Version. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now stop for just a moment there. We want to notice that the reason we can live unto God and offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness is because we live under grace. This chapter in Romans is all about grace. Well, let's finish a few verses. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed 
the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Ah, did you catch that? Okay, let's read two more verses. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. What a great passage of Scripture. I know there's a whole lot there, and we're just going to summarize it, but uh, I think leading up to that last verse, because we become slaves to God, the benefit or the fruit actually is the word used there, you reap, leads to holiness. It's important to have the context of the teaching. Now, in almost uh, half of the verses between verse 1 and 18, Paul teaches that Christians do not live in sin, are not slaves to sin, and that sin is not their master. And the command is, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin in verse 11, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first truth is we've been emancipated. (laughs) We've been set free from sin. Now, the second truth I would point out is found in verses 4 and 8. In those verses, Paul teaches that it was by sharing in Christ's death that we were set free from sin and have found new life in Christ. And that phrase is found two or three times in this passage, new life. So that verse 11 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And notice verse 12, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So this matter of new life teaches us that we have been re created. And probably some other verses uh, come to your mind in the New Testament. We've been set free from sin. We've been emancipated from sin. We've been recreated and have new life in Christ. And then that section at the end that began with verse 19, the fruit you reap leads to holiness. Verse 19 and verse 21 describes our commitment to offer the parts of our body in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. One of our other favorite authors, Dr. Ben Witherington, says that pursuing such a pattern of living leads to cleansing or sanctification. In other words, the believer's behavior and quality of life 
before God. Now that clearly lays out Wesley's understanding of our relationship with God after we are saved, once we are believers. And the primary responsibility we have is to offer ourselves because it is God at work. It is God who sanctifies the believer and gives us the strength to live without sin in our lives. Now, we're in the second part of the message, and we're not that far from the end, but I do want to uh, use that reminder of teaching to take us back to the distinction between the Reformed understanding of sanctification, you might know it as as the Calvinist understanding, and the Wesleyan-Arminian understanding. Both are biblically based. Both have uh, sections of the Bible that can be a foundation for looking at uh, grace and sin and holiness in this way, but they have a very distinct difference when it comes to understanding what sanctification is in the life of the believer. And uh, we began looking at provenient grace to understand that back in May. Now I want to just clarify and kind of crystallize what the difference is in the understanding of sanctifying grace. For St. Augustine, whose late teaching on this matter was followed by John Calvin and Martin Luther and several of the other reformers, uh, we find that Augustine did not believe that God the Holy Spirit could transform the lives of believers by transforming their character. That was a conclusion and a teaching by Martin Luther and by John Calvin, uh, and they both depended heavily on St. Augustine. So the conclusion for them and part of uh, Reformed doctrine today is that believers must sin every day because God cannot transform their lives so that they live without sinning by transforming their character. Now, they recognized clearly the teaching in the New Testament that believers should and could be entirely sanctified. So what was their uh, definition and explanation of sanctification in terms of uh, the bigger picture of salvation? Well, the conclusion they came to was that imputed sanctification, when we are justified, is given to every believer. Now, sanctifying grace is the source of power for the transformation of character. And Calvin and Luther believed that when we were saved, we were not only imputed righteousness and forgiveness and redemption and adoption, and there is no distinction between uh, Calvinism or the Reformed position and Wesleyan Arminianism there. All of those things are imputed, which means 
that they are counted as being true of Christians in the sight of God. In fact, Luther said, uh, and Calvin made statements like it, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not always entirely sanctified. So added to being the recipients of imputed righteousness, the reformers in the context of Augustine's teaching added that sanctifying grace is also imputed. So a believer is both saved, forgiven, and sanctified when uh, they receive Christ as their Savior through repentance and faith. What that means is that there is not a grace which empowers the believer in their daily living and comes from the Holy Spirit that allows them to have victory over sin. Now, the difference is that Wesley uh, emphasized the sanctifying power of God's grace, which he believed was not imputed like righteousness, but in fact was imparted by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Imparted sanctification takes seriously those places in Scripture which make it clear that we are to live uh, in the power of the Spirit, that we are to completely yield and give ourselves to God. In the verses we read in Romans, we were to offer all that we have in our bodies uh, as instruments of righteousness. So what's the result of that? We want to be uh, fair to an understanding of sanctifying grace from a Reformed position. So Christians could work and work to be holy, but will never receive it or achieve it in terms of uh, living in power, living with victory over sin. Christians, although they are counted as sanctified by uh, imputation, they are seen as sanctified. Remember Luther's statement, every Christian is always entirely sanctified. They must seek forgiveness because they still are going to sin every day, and they must acknowledge it by seeking forgiveness. Now, I want to uh, kind of crystallize this by reading from two authors. Uh, back in the holiness movement tradition, which was Wesleyan Arminian, uh, Hannah Whitehall Smith wrote a classic book called uh, Secret of a Happy Life. And she articulates what we understand from a Wesleyan position to be uh, the life of a believer. All that we claim, she said then, in this life of sanctification is that by a step of faith, we put ourselves into the hands of the Lord for him to work in us all the good pleasure of his will. And that by a continuous exercise of faith, we keep ourselves there. Our part is trusting. It is his part to accomplish the results. 
Now, I want you to compare that. In fact, that passage is what is quoted uh, by Kevin DeLong in a classic book uh, written about 10 years ago entitled The Whole in Our Holiness, which presented the Calvinist position, the Reformed position on sanctification. This is what he says. For us, when it comes to sanctification, we don't just look to the Lord. We don't just get gripped by the gospel. We also work hard to be holy. Christians work. They work to kill sin, and they work to live in the Spirit. They have rest in the gospel, but never rest in their battle against the flesh and the devil. Putting off the corruption of the flesh is, as Calvin put it, according to uh, DeLong, a work arduous and of immense labor. (laughs) So, DeLong comments on Hannah Whitehall Smith's teaching that we simply offer ourselves, our part is trusting, his is to accomplish the results. His comment is, this may sound super spiritual, but for us, it's not biblical. He says this statement, Sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled toil and effort. Here's the difference between the understanding of sanctification. And it makes sense. If you believe that sanctification is imputed, it's simply something that happens in the sight of God. He looks through the blood of Jesus and sees us as entirely sanctified. Then it's understandable on the basis of what. You see, when believers live, that the conclusion is that you're going to sin every day. That doesn't mean that you don't claim the power of the Holy Spirit and work towards uh, being holy and sanctified. In fact, as you heard, uh, working is the heart of your life as a believer, and you work very hard. I think Calvin's words were a work arduous and of immense labor. But every day, you will still have to ask for forgiveness of sins because you won't experience here in this world entire sanctification until the day that you die and go to be with the Lord. You can see the contrast. From a Wesleyan-Arminian point of view, we don't believe that you are imputed sanctification. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been given so that we can experience the power of the Holy Spirit and live, as we saw in Romans 6, free from sin, having victory over sin. And this distinction, more than any other, uh, has created a lot of confusion among believers, I believe, about holiness and about sin and the need for sinning. So as we conclude, uh, I want to go to an important sermon that John Wesley preached in 1785 entitled On Working Out Our Own Salvation. He maintains that the sanctifying grace of God which begins at new birth, creates not only the ability to cooperate with God, 
and thereby to prosper and grow in grace, but also the obligation to do so. This is what he says. First, God worketh in you. Therefore, you can work, otherwise it would be impossible. If he did not work, it would be impossible for you to work out your own salvation. So he agrees that we work, but it's God working in us, and our task is to offer ourselves and present ourselves to God. Secondly, he says, God worketh in you, therefore you must work. He says you must be workers together with him, which was a topic of a podcast just a few months ago. These are the very words of the apostle. Otherwise, he will cease working. So, God works in you, therefore, we can work and should. But holiness and sanctification, sanctifying grace, is the power that God gives to us, and our part in that is surrender. Wesley's understanding of spiritual growth and development is that it is grace-infused ability and obligation. And there we differ from theologies that see it otherwise. Now, Wesley was not afraid to use the imperative uh, mood in his counsel and guidance. He used terms such as strive and strain and labor, terms that highlight our human cooperation with God, but without ever a trace of merit, since it is the Almighty who works in us, to use Wesley's own words, of his good pleasure. The present gift of sanctifying grace brings power into our lives, and it could not be maintained unless believers continually seek to respond to the ongoing grace of God. Let me close by mentioning just a couple of scriptures. The theme of this lesson has been that sanctifying grace brings power into our lives and can conquer sin in the believer's life. I think immediately of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, it is Christ through his spirit that sustains and restores and cleanses and grows the Christian into maturity. And then Hebrews, the fifth chapter, starting halfway through verse 12. Uh, this is a great teaching and admonition. You need milk, not solid food, he was correcting them. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching on righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, in light of those words, Dr. Jonathan Raymond's description of what happens too often in the lives of Christians today can be quoted and, I think, uh, helpful to us. As we are cleansed from sin, Dr. Raymond says, God's grace makes possible our new life in Christ. We are saved by the justifying grace of God. 
Sadly, too often the journey comes to a halt. There is no further progression. We remain immature and underdeveloped as we wait for God's glory bus to heaven. Carnality reigns as we become victims of old habits. We surrender to temptation and regress to sin. Thankfully, there is more to the journey. There is power over sin and growth in grace through the sanctifying grace of God. Well, I hope that has been helpful. Uh, it's been a uh, kind of a dive into uh, the two great theological systems of thought, uh, but I hope that we have looked at it in a way that it can be a practical help to us. Uh, we join hands and hearts with our brothers who may disagree uh, with us on a particular part of, of our theology uh, because the Scripture is very clear. When that happens, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and that we should do everything we do unto the Lord. I'd like to close with just uh, a short prayer. Would you join me? Father, I pray that Christians will seek power through the Holy Spirit to resist sin and that God's Spirit will protect and sustain believers as they live for him. Lord, I ask that those who have wandered from their commitment to follow Christ will even today at this moment Listen to the Holy Spirit within them and be restored by his grace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, that uh, concludes our lesson today, and uh, we'll be moving back to a topical Bible study next month. If you uh, want to dive a little deeper, we'll be providing the study notes for this lesson. And uh, until we meet again, my prayer is that uh, God will bless you and keep you in the palm of his hand and that you will experience the joy of your salvation each and every day. Until next time, this is Vern Jewett signing off. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.